This is Shades Midweek, and you are listening to episode number 123. That's 123. My name is John Mark DeRoe, and we are recording this in three stream studios. And I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, Brad Brown. And today, we have quite a lot to cover, so we are actually going to jump right into everything that we need to do today. So I'm just going to go ahead, Brad, if you're okay with us, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into Jam's Album of the Week. Let's do it. Jam's Album of the Week. Oh, sweet spirit, carry me along. Oh, sweet spirit, carry me along to my How does he do it? So my album of the week this week is one that's been out for a little bit. I bet some of you are surprised that I have been remiss to mention it until now because I think it's been out since May of 2022. I've been surprised. The artist is called Color Vault, and it's a collaboration, a project between Young Oceans, who you're hearing sing this song now called Carry Me Along. Uh, The other two artists involved are A. Bashai who I'm not that familiar with, and Alex Taylor, who I'm also not that familiar with, but they have formed a project called Color Vault. The album is called Faint. It is a collection of worship songs that are rather unique, and I thought I'd feature that on today's episode of JM's Album of the Week, mainly because uh, I, I love Young Oceans. I've professed my love for Young Oceans in the past. You have. And I love his music and just his overall uh, intentional musical direction and his vibe that he brings. And so this is a really cool album. It There are some songs that I'm not that crazy about on the album. There's definitely a poppier electronic sound that is present throughout most of the tracks. But I like a lot of the songs that Young Oceans is involved with. This one's called Carry Me Along. Uh, there's another cool one. This one's called Faint. That I'll play a little bit of as well. But yeah, lots of electronic elements throughout this record. Got some Radiohead vibes. Yeah, and lyrically, it's it reads a lot like the Psalms. A lot of the lyrics mm-hmm. remind me of Psalms in a lot of ways. And so, I don't who, are, who are these two other guys? What's their deal? I don't really know much about them. Um, if anybody knows them or is familiar, please write in and let me know. There's not much that you can find on the Color Vault website. 
Um, but it does remind me of kind of what we've done with Shades, which is essentially like a collaboration between different artists and songwriters and releasing music under a pseudonym. So, because mm. um, Young Oceans, obviously, he's been putting out music for, mm-hmm. you know, over 10 years now as as Young Oceans. And uh, he's done a lot of collaborations, too. He actually just put out another song today, a, a reworking of one of his old songs and Josh Garrels performs on that so he's oh, kind of wow. he's all over the place he's always doing something stays very very busy let me know if you like this color vault album i have really enjoyed it um who knows maybe a couple of these songs i may pull out on a sunday morning Who oh, knows? that'd be pretty wild if, if the moment's right yeah i don't know the album is called faint the band is called color vault that's one word color vault check that out Welcome to Bradford's Book Club, fans, friends, and followers. Today is a little bit of a unique edition, John Mark. And the reason is because the book that I'm going to be speaking of today, we have gotten um, several copies directly from the publisher Wow. For Who's your connection? Who do you know? I can't say, or I would have to kill you okay. and everyone else then listening to this podcast. It. But we got a direct line from the publisher. And so this little book titled Praying the Bible by Donald S. Whitney is a gem. Let me read a little bit from the back cover. When you pray, does it ever feel like you're just saying the same old things about the same old things? Offering us the encouragement and the practical advice we're all looking for, Donald S. Whitley, best-selling author of Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, which I've read and I think I might have recommended on here, outlines an easy-to-grasp method that has the power to transform your prayer life, praying the words of Scripture, simple yet profound. Praying the Bible will prove invaluable as you seek to commune with your Heavenly Father in prayer each and every day. So... We have a little contest. I don't, I don't know if you call it a contest, but sweepstakes, whatever it is, the first five people to email Shades Midweek with the phrase, Donald Duck is going to get a free copy of Praying the Bible. So if you're listening now, stop what you're doing. If you're driving, pull over, pull out that phone and text us at midweek at shadesvalley.org for your chance to win a free copy directly from the publisher, Crossway Themselves, Praying the Bible by Donald S. Whitney. Great. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to give away some books. Also, Brett, I think you misspoke. You said text midweek at shadesvalley.org. That's not going to work. So they need to email midweek at shadesvalley.org and apparently it needs to say donald duck for some reason so that's the code you know when you get like 15 percent off a book or something oh sure sure well you could just be like uh 
you know, email Brad 15. Did I say text? I think you did. Okay. It's <laughs> embarrassing. All right, so they got to say Donald email Donald Duck. Yeah, Donald great, Duck. great recommendation. Yeah, we got some books. Very exciting. We don't get a ton of free stuff here at Shades, but when we do, we like to we like to share it. We like to share that swag. That's right. That wealth that we have. All right. Moving along. Yeah, what's next? Guess what? We got some more emails, so let's take a quick trip down to the email corridor. The email corridor. All right, Sage wrote in. She wrote in. We mentioned her last week on the podcast. Here's what she had to say. Men of Midweek, I must extend my appreciation for the shout-out in Midweek's latest episode. It pains me to leave Shades, and by Shades, I, of course, mean Shades Midweek. Luckily, the modern world allows me to listen from afar though knowing the studio will be roughly 700 miles away will make the listening experience bittersweet. Well, thank you for writing in, Sage. We really appreciate it. You will be missed. I hope that you continue to listen to Midweek. Um, That's the beauty of podcasting is that you can listen to it anywhere in the world as long as you have either cell service or Wi-Fi connection of some kind, internet connection. I know. It's sad to see her go. She was dedicated on the slides team yep along with a lot of other ways she was involved one thing i'm excited about is don't we have this thing where we can see where people are listening from yes and now there's going to be a dot that's true i didn't think about northeast so that's pretty cool i didn't think about that that is true through through our podbean uh account we can see where you're listening from so when josh mcclung should i have said that (laughs) when josh mcclung uh, listens, for example, or Meg, they we get a little. It's like, hey, Poland, Poland's right. listening. Little ping, yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah. All right, our second email is from Sir Connor Gaeta. He's a frequent writer in to Shades Midweek. The uh, subject line is called the Mars Volta. Let's see what he has to say. Oh, hey, Midweek, I listened to episode. He says he listened to episode one, two, three, but this is actually episode one, two, three. I believe mm. he meant one, two, one. You maybe fact check that. And heard JM's album of the week section in which he featured the album "Deloused in the Comatorium" by the Mars Volta. To answer JM's question, I have in fact heard this record. See, I knew it. I knew Connor had heard this album. I could count on it. He goes on to say. I found it through my college roommate who was a massive fan of the Mars Volta and this release in particular. Admittedly, I'm not the biggest fan of the record, but it is without a doubt an interesting fusion of prog and post-hardcore sounds. Adding to the conversation, this same roommate was also a huge fan of the album Get to Heaven by the band Everything Everything. I actually prefer this record. It's definitely not the same sound, but it's pretty high energy and fun like Delouse in the Comatorium. Check it out and let me know what you think. Sincerely, Connor Gaeta. Well, thank you, Connor, for writing in. I will definitely check that out. I've heard of Everything Everything. In fact, I may have even seen them live before on accident at a festival that I was playing at. I believe they were playing on one of the stages so I have heard them play before live. I'm almost 100% sure. Uh, but I haven't really listened to their album. And I'm a huge fan, obviously, of the Mars Volta and that record that I featured on Album of the Week. It's meant a lot to me and uh, has been a huge inspiration for me musically. So, and I'm, you know, so much so that I still talk about it today, even though it came out in like whenever it was, 03 or 04. 
Wow. So, yeah, dude, Connor, thank you for writing in. I will check out that album. We did have one other email, but you know what? We're going to tease everyone, and we're going to save it till next week. It is from one Grant Primo, though, so you can imagine wow. maybe what the tenor or the timber of the email is. So, once again, thank you all for writing in to Shades Midweek. It really makes our job fun, and we get to... Just have a blast getting to read all your emails, and uh, it, it's just nice knowing that that you're listening and that you're responding. Yep. Always love it. <laughs> great, great interjection, Brad. Thank you for that. All right. Well, those are the emails from the email corridor. You, If you want to email the show, once again, midweek at shadesvalley.org is where you're going to do that. And then the, the contest. Make sure to email in that's right about getting this free book exactly if you don't know what i'm talking about right now that means that you fast forward until this part and now you don't know what we're talking about the emails the emails are already coming in so you need to hurry oh wow okay fantastic all right brad uh real quick why don't you tell us what we're doing today and what we have prepared for everyone yes so today we are having an interview with the director of the Safeguarding Initiative Program with Grace, which is the godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. This individual this past weekend came to Shades and part of Grace's Safeguarding Initiative to give a training for our church. And so we wanted to have a follow-up conversation with him where he could talk more about Grace, the work they do, and what that means for our church moving forward. And Brad, I can't remember if we mentioned this during the interview or not, but if someone was not here for the training, uh, but they still want to hear what was said, how, how can they access that? What do they need to do? We recorded the training, so be on the lookout because we're going to include the link to that training in our weekly email. If you don't get our weekly email, you can do so by going to the homepage of our website where you can subscribe there. You can also send us an email at midweek at shadesvalley.org and we'll send you the link to that training because we want everyone to be able to see it. All you have to do is go, like uh, Brad said, go to shadesvalley.org. Org. If you scroll to the bottom of the homepage, there's a place where you can just really easily enter in your email address and it automatically subscribes you to the weekly email that goes out generally on Wednesdays, about midweek of every week. So do that. Awesome. All right. Well, here is our interview with Mike Sloan. We are so excited and so honored to have with us uh, via phone on Shades Midweek today, Mike Sloan from Grace. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Brad, John Mark, really good to be with you today. Where are you uh, calling us from? I'm calling from uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, where I reside, and... uh, yeah, it's a nice, uh, sunny, not too awfully hot summer day up here in Virginia. Um, but we've got that August humidity going on, as I'm sure you do as well. Oh, yes. We are experiencing that in Alabama. It's a rainy day here, so it, it feels like we're in a swamp. 
but I'm glad right. to hear that it's uh, pretty where you are. Well, uh, we've gotten to know uh, Mike through Grace, and he has been involved in the safeguarding initiative that we've been doing here at Shades Valley. And so Mike has uh, just came and did a training for the entire church. And if you weren't able to come to that training, we uh, have recorded it and we can give you uh, access to it. So uh, we'll be making that available to you soon. But we wanted to have Mike on to, one, uh, allow you to get to know him a little better and to hear a little bit more about Grace and to answer some common questions that we've had. So, Mike, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, how you came to the faith, maybe a little bit about your family, and then uh, the work that you do now. Great. Uh, Thanks. So I grew up uh, in the church, grew up a pastor's kid, came to faith at a very early age, and um, really for uh, several years, um, probably as a teenager and then into college, I felt a call to enter into some kind of ministry. So I, uh, after college, taught Christian school uh, with my wife, uh, Emily, for uh, me for a couple of years, she taught uh, for several years. And actually, that's at a place not too far from you all in Anniston, Alabama. Oh, yeah. Then we went to seminary, uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And then I've been a pastor in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And then I helped start a church in Columbus, Ohio. And so, you know, kind of always been cannot really remember a time where I wasn't around the church. Yeah. Uh, I love the church. Um, and so that's, that's my story. Um, part of how I got into doing this work, and I'm the director of safeguarding at Grace, which uh, Grace is a long clunky acronym for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you more about what I do in the safeguarding initiative. I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, how I kind of got into this work is uh, very early on uh, when I was a pastor in Atlanta, just out of seminary, uh, someone came to our church and offered to do a training on abuse prevention for us. And I was uh, kind of stunned in that training to learn how prevalent abuse is and that there are real things churches can do proactively uh, to reduce Mm. uh, the amount of abuse that occurs or at least to get training to know also how to respond if it does come to light, uh, if it's going on, say, in a Christian home or or someone's a survivor and they disclose, maybe it didn't happen here, uh, but I'm a survivor, uh, that the church can better uh, minister to them and help them. Uh, I was very struck that I was not given training on this in my seminary training and in my internships, which were otherwise a really excellent preparation. And just kind of knowing, having grown up in the church, that very often this is something we don't want to talk about for, for obvious reasons. It's not a, a very pleasant thing to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really thought, you know, <laughs> we as a church should face this uh, much yeah. more uh, proactively. So I started reading, researching, trying to get my hands on more resources 
And eventually I was able to be in a place where I could responsibly train and help others. And so for the last probably 10 plus years, I've been training churches and helping churches develop more effective policies and consulting when churches have some sort of crisis or kind of um, individual situation where they feel like they need help with. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about my relation to the church, my faith. And I will say um, for myself and my other colleagues who work at Grace, um, the reason we do this is because, and the reason, you know, Grace is very much a, uh, a Christian ministry. Uh, the reason we do this is not because we're against churches. It's just the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's because we care very deeply about churches, that churches are growing to better reflect uh, the heart of Jesus in these uh, types of issues. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And we do want to hear more about Grace next. But before we do that, would you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, so I uh, mentioned my wife, Emily. Um, so we have been, uh, let's see, we've been married for uh, 21 years now. Hmm. Uh, we have five kids, five daughters. Um, yeah, so um, my youngest is... Um, fifth grade. She's 10 years old. I actually just turned 11. My oldest is 18, just finished high school. So uh, life is quite busy here for us <laughs> in, uh, in Lynchburg, Virginia. Never a dull moment. Yeah. Well, awesome. Awesome. If you would just tell us a little bit more about Grace and the work that uh, you guys do there. Yeah. So Grace, um, as I mentioned, is a nonprofit Christian ministry. Grace was founded in 2004, and our very simple mission is to empower churches to recognize, prevent, and respond to abuse. And there's two kind of sides of our work. Um, I head up our safeguarding side, which is our more proactive training policy development side. And then I have colleagues. Uh, Jim Luttrell is our head of institutional response. And my colleagues on that side of our work do a lot of independent investigation and independent assessment work uh, for churches and other organizations. And so all of us uh, collaborate on a lot of consultation um, as well. So um, in terms of uh, the safeguarding side, we work with uh, many churches like yourselves or other ministries who reach out to us. And sometimes we do it uh, in a more um, comprehensive way, like with our safeguarding initiative that you all are doing. And sometimes it's just a standalone consultation or a standalone training uh, that we help churches with. Yeah, Mike, it seems like the church is waking up to the reality of physical, sexual, and spiritual abuse in its communities. So two questions in, in regards to that. The, the first is, why do you think that we are beginning to see and name this reality now in the church? Right. So, you know, I think part of it is, uh, part of that story is that um, many survivors have very bravely started using their voice Mm -hmm. and receiving empowerment and encouragement from others 
I think there's been connections through. I mean, this is something, this is, a, I think, a very complex topic. But yeah. I think at least part of the answer is um, there are a lot of survivors connecting through like social media and feel more empowered than ever. And it's never easy to come forward and talk about some type of harm you've experienced. Uh, and most people uh, need to realize that there are some myths out there that, well, people who speak out about this are just interested in attention or money. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the attention that really anyone wants. And there's really not a lot of money for most survivors um, mm -hmm. in, in, that, in, in that way. So, you know, it's, it's better to, I think, just be glad that the church is in a place where thankfully more of these realities are, are coming out and more leaders are taking responsibility to say, we need to be proactive here. So we have a lot of people reach out to us in a reactive way, like, hey, we've had this occur at our church. Uh, we need help. We feel out of our depth. But also, we have plenty of churches who reach out to us and say, you know, we've, we've seen this in the news. We know this is a reality. Uh, we know we need better tools and a better proactive plan to work on this uh, because we, we truly believe this really matters. So I think it's not that all of a sudden um, this is an issue where it wasn't an issue before. Mm -hmm. I think most of us understand that. It's just something that culturally it was very difficult to talk about. There weren't a lot of easy ways for survivors to uh, raise, their, uh, raise their voice and be heard. And I think we've just reached a critical mass of uh, both survivors speaking out, responsible leaders uh, taking ownership of this. And I am very encouraged more than ever, mm. uh, even in the last two or three years, how many more churches are stepping up uh, to work on this proactively. Yeah, it's awesome. And the first question was a, a complicated question. And so the second one is a complicated one as well. But I, I wanted to leave it broad and, and you sure. can respond as you see fit. But big question, how is it that abuse occurs continues to occur and is even covered up in Christian communities? Sure. So again, like you said, <laughs> um, it's a complex, it's a complex uh, mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, at, at the very root of it, abuse is about entitlement. Uh, someone thinking, you know, I can do what I want. I can take what I want. And, you know, that is not perpetrated in a Christian community, in a church, without manipulating others, typically, deceiving others. Uh, most defenders know how to blend in to a Christian community and talk just like anyone else talks. Um, pray like anyone else prays in a small group. Uh, leads a Bible study um, or, or gives a Bible lesson or volunteers with a youth group. And so that deception, that calculated deception, um, you know, as we see in the words of Jesus, when he talked about beware of one who's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, that's how it's perpetrated. It has to involve deception, uh, hiding, and offenders use, of course, fear and shame to, to keep a lot of survivors uh, silenced and feeling like they're alone, 
and no one will help them. Uh, so on, on an interpersonal level, uh, that's the case. And then, of course, there are churches who get sucked into a view of power and mission that says our institution, our mission uh, is more important than anything else. Mm. Uh, we would push back in our work, having seen institutions cover up abuse over the years and say that Jesus first and foremost cared about individual people. And Jesus spoke very, very strong words about the responsibility of those who have power to protect vulnerable people. Jesus used that metaphor of shepherds who are protective over vulnerable sheep and protecting them from someone who is uh, a bad actor, uh, a wolf who would uh, devour. So uh, many times churches or institutions justify covering up abuse by saying, well, uh, we are called to uh, have this amazing mission to tell people about Jesus, and that crowds out, and we're not paying attention <laughs> to that really awful, um, you know, uh, way that we can prioritize our own self, our own mission, mm -hmm. um, in the name of Jesus, sometimes even, and miss the true priority of Jesus. So, um, sadly, um, that has occurred. Uh, more and more, though, uh, as I said, uh, churches are realizing, hey, it, it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, the budget, the building, that's not what really counts. What counts is people and, and the truth and um, being able to care for others uh, takes precedent over any of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mike, uh, you mentioned earlier the Safeguard Initiative, and this is what your organization is doing here at Shades. Um, for those who are listening who did not attend the training, uh, could you just tell them what has been involved for us so far and what this means for us as a church moving forward? Right. Yeah. So um, before I get into like what we're doing specifically, just to say the overall goal of this initiative is to work on and support a, a, a church culture, mm -hmm. a church culture that prioritizes uh, what Jesus would have us prioritize. Mm -hmm. And it's really shifting the mentality from, oh, hey, we've got someone in our church who does kids ministry and the kids and youth leaders, they kind of deal with the safety stuff. Well, that doesn't really account for how most abuse occurs. It's not that we don't need protective measures in our youth ministry uh, and the events we have for youth group or for kids ministry. Of course we do. But really most of these occurs in unstructured times and in homes. And we need a proper vigilance uh, in our whole community. And to have effective prevention and response, we need to engage the whole community with connecting this issue to our Christian faith, understanding that, hey, as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we are all called uh, to take responsibility for protecting those who are vulnerable, children and other groups who are vulnerable. And this is something all of us as adults have a responsibility for in our church community. Uh, we also need education for, for the adults 
to be more aware, to notice anything that might be concerning, to know our policy and the policy boundaries we have, so that if someone is crossing those boundaries or testing those boundaries, uh, we can have others respond and leaders can reinforce those boundaries in appropriate ways. And then certainly if there's anything more, um, more significant, like a disclosure of abuse, uh, we need all of us to have some practical skills to be able to respond well, to be able to know what to do, who to talk to next. Mm-hmm. So those are things we, of course, cover in training, but all of those things, are a part of this very simple goal of kind of recentering prevention and response in terms of our whole community. Again, not just making it the responsibility and the, the purview of the youth leader or the kids ministry director, but saying, hey, this is all of us and all of us have a responsibility uh, to be properly vigilant. Like you said, not scared, not paranoid, not suspicious of everybody, uh, but properly vigilant. So toward that goal, in the Safeguarding Initiative, we do a training for leaders specifically on creating and supporting that particular culture. Uh, We've done a building walkthrough where we consult on safety in your specific uh, building space and ministry space and talk about safety issues uh, in your context there. Uh, as you mentioned, we just are doing uh, this all-adult training for the whole congregation that's been recorded that people, if they weren't able to, can go back and listen to. And then very significantly, you all have put together a policy team who's been working with us on a, a round of policy revisions to try to strengthen certain areas of policy and take steps forward uh, with regard to your policy. So. All of those things work together, you know, prevention knowledge, training, uh, consultation on safety in your building and policy. All of that works together to help strengthen the overall uh, level of safety, uh, the level of preparedness everyone has. And the goal is proactive prevention and certainly uh, godly response um, as needed, whether that's a boundary violation or a concern or if abuse uh, did come to light uh, that needed to be reported, like related to, to child abuse, for example. So that's kind of the, the broad sketch of what you all are doing with us. Yeah, thanks, Mike. That's so helpful. You all have been um, so, I think, uh, just clear and in uh, informative and in the ways that you all have talked about creating a culture versus just having policy policies for events at the building. Uh, could you maybe give a few examples of why it's important to have a culture that protects the most vulnerable in the community versus just having some policies uh, for childcare in the building or during an official event? Right. And it's a great, it's a great point. So just to give an example, churches reach out to us and say, well, we've got this concern. This man is interacting with this. um, Let's say it's a a 13 year old um, after church in the foyer. Well, this man doesn't work in the kids ministry or youth ministry. He's just someone who attends. 
And is, are there standards and boundaries for those interactions that just occur when everyone's standing around fellowshipping after church? Is there safety? Is, is there proactive um, boundaries? Are there proactive boundaries for, for when everyone's um, just fellowshipping after church in the sanctuary, after service is over, in the hallways? Um, you know, in small groups and homes and all of those other places. Um, that's where we want to see. And that, again, gets back to that major point, that this is coming from a culture and a mentality that we, especially leaders, have to uh, cultivate and develop uh, in the community, that every adult knows, hey, um, we have certain standards for conduct of how we interact with vulnerable people. Uh, adults and children. And that matters all the time, because certainly that's where God's heart is. God cares very deeply that we show the respect that to do others, mm -hmm. that we, as people who hold power and trust as adults, and certainly not just leaders, but all adults, that we are uh, promoting safety and care for others who are especially vulnerable uh, to being hurt or harmed. So that's really the, the key that we want to see churches latch hold of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. And it makes so much sense when you speak about it, because we talk all the time at this church about uh, so much community and life and discipleship and everything happening outside of structured events. Right. And so it would make sense that when we talk about protecting the most vulnerable in the community, that our mind should go to not just church events at the building, uh, but also as we're hanging out together as a community in uh, spontaneous right. and organic ways as well. And I know that abuse uh, often can occur in those environments. Right. And so as you and you as a pastor would never say to your people, hey, uh, your faith, uh, really what matters for your faith is this uh, hour, hour and a half of worship on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And the rest of your life, that really doesn't relate to yeah. uh, Christianity or your Christian faith, of course. Uh, of course not. Uh, we know that following Jesus means orienting our whole life um, after what he calls us to be and calls us to do um, as individuals and as a community. And really, this is another way to say it is just... Uh, bringing that discipleship mentality into this realm of safeguarding, mm -hmm. into this realm of abuse prevention uh, and response. Mm. Yeah, so good. Well, if it's okay, Mike, I want to ask a few questions that we've gotten from the community that yeah. I imagine are pretty common that you've gotten before from different churches that just list some concerns with implementing the policy. Uh, that we've been working on with you guys. So the first question that I know you've heard before that, that we've gotten as well is, what about false allegations of abuse? I'm concerned about reporting someone and ruining their life if it turns right. out not to be true. How would you respond to that concern? Sure. Um, first of all, I think it's helpful to be very clear to, and make a distinction between when the policy is violated 
and then when there is a need to report abuse. Mm -hmm. Those are two very different things. So when someone is just maybe having an interaction and because of how they're talking to or how they're touching or interacting with, you know, a minor, um, that that's, hey, that's, that's something I noticed. That's something concerning or, hey, like, hey, that kind of touch or that kind of uh, speech violates our policy. I need to go talk to Brad about that um, mm-hmm. because having a clear mechanism to report a concern or a policy violation uh, is very important in reinforcing boundaries and upholding safety in the community to let people know that, hey, these boundaries are here for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um and we all need to be respectful of those boundaries, especially as it relates to how we interact with vulnerable people. So first of all, um, we're not reporting someone in the way that when like a report is made of, of abuse. So those are two very different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And so um, first of all, I think it's very important that we ratchet down the anxiety of just sharing a concern and sharing that, hey, our policy may have been violated with responsible leaders. Um, responsible leaders are not going to overreact in that situation, but they're going to gather information and look at the scenario and take responsible steps. And no one's going to overreact and start labeling someone you know, a predator um, because the policy was violated. Um, so I think keeping those two situations um, distinct is first of all, a very helpful uh, mentality. Um, Second of all, uh, it's definitely important that we as Christians recognize that it is very hard for a survivor to come forward to share about their experience. When they've been abused, many survivors feel deep shame and guilt. And even if they know in their head, hey, this was not my fault, it's normal or typical that a survivor would feel a deep-seated sense of shame or guilt. Mm. Many often feel scared, and it's just so painful for them to talk about very often. It's so important that when someone does open up and disclose that they have been abused, that we believe them, that we support them, and that we take responsible steps, recognizing that we are not investigators. We are not the ones who are making a determination of, you know, that situation. That's just not our role. Our role is to be supportive, and there are others who are going to have that role um, once it's been reported. Hmm. And I would tell Christians um, that when you understand that someone who has been hurt by someone who holds power and trust over them and felt that very deep betrayal and gets up the courage to come forward to someone else who has power and trust, um, that's why there are so few false allegations. Hmm. Um, Because, you know, why would someone want to talk about that or talk about something so painful? Um, And so the, the studies on this issue come back, and for many child abuse studies actually show like 98 to 99% of child disclosures are in fact true. Uh, when you look at a very much a broader range of studies for adult and child disclosures, uh, the studies bring back a consistent range of 92 to 98 percent 
of disclosures uh, are true. Hmm. Um, so again, to take a supportive posture, a believing posture, is not um, saying that we've conducted an investigation and concluded something. That's just not at all, all our role. So um, first of all, so making that distinction between a concern, a policy violation, and a reporting situation is helpful. Mm-hmm. And then as we start to understand some of those dynamics that survivors experience, uh, that can help us understand why false allegations um, are uh, kind of a rarity in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, they do occur, uh, but they're just not very common. And so those are a few things I would say. Yeah. And certainly I don't think uh, that it's wrong to say um, that even when something there is a false allegation that's reported, that there are long-term, it's very rare that there would be any long-term consequences um, because law enforcement typically investigates in a very low-key fashion in these types Mm -hmm. of cases. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing to to point out. Yeah. Yeah, so helpful. Well, in the second question, I think uh, some of your answers to the first question will tie into this as well. But another question we've gotten is, isn't this going to create a culture of suspicion? Will everyone think that we're constantly suspecting them of being an abuser? Right. And I understand that. But the alternative is that we don't, we aren't proactive. We don't talk about this much. And that just gives abusers a lot of room to maneuver, sadly. And so we want to respond and be more proactive and come out of our denial and some myths into better education. And I completely understand and agree that we don't want to swing to another extreme and go to an extreme of, of paranoia and suspicion. And so, you know, paranoia says, don't talk to kids. Don't ever touch kids. Um, and that's just not helpful or healthy. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful for prevention. It's not healthy. Uh, Children need healthy interaction within boundaries, healthy touch within boundaries. Uh, And yet having boundaries that say all touch should be welcomed by the child and accountable to others for anyone in the church who's interacting with kids, whether you're a volunteer with kids ministry or you're just interacting with kids in the hallways after church, Um, that is healthy. And it's not promoting suspicion of everybody. It's actually a way to build trust with everyone within those boundaries. Hmm. So having those boundaries allows that it puts people who are bad actors on notice that, hey, we're, we're caring, we're careful, we're properly vigilant. But within these boundaries, we build trust with one another. And we don't have to be constantly paranoid or suspicious of other people. Hmm. Yeah, that's so helpful. You know, Mike, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. One of the things that I was thinking about during the training on Saturday is it seems like there's something within us that says if there was someone that was abusing children in this community, I would know about it. I would be able to detect it. I would see it outside of any sort of 
policy. And so I'd love to hear you, uh, one, your thoughts on that and why we have that kind of inclination. And then two, if your experience working with churches has revealed something else. Yeah, my experience has revealed something else. And mm-hmm. also the research revealed something else. Mm-hmm. Um, most abusers are, are very skilled at, at flying below the radar and the, the type of techniques they're using. Um, a lot of, we talked about grooming as a training on Saturday. Yeah. And a lot of grooming behavior is similar to behaviors or exactly the same as certain behaviors that people who genuinely care about kids also demonstrate. Um, paying attention to kids, <laughs> um, um, giving proper uh, affection or touch within boundaries, um, you know, thinking and, and, and helping kids and helping other people, all of those things, just being a helpful person. Um, those are things that many abusers do on purpose mm-hmm. with the hope of looking for ways to gain access to kids, uh, looking for vulnerabilities that they can exploit uh, to, to take opportunity of and have time with kids or move a child or, or a youth to a more uh, isolated area that might give them an opportunity to offend. Yeah. So uh, you, you have to recognize that, of course, abusers do not want to get caught. Like that's, <laughs> they do not want to get caught. So they're typically very aware, mm-hmm. very thoughtful, very, uh, very much calculated in what they're doing. And so they're not just someone who's going to typically uh, just stand out uh, to everyone. Now, we do see cases where uh, someone is demonstrating very clear concerning behavior over and over again, and no one steps in because they don't have good education, good, good training, good policy boundaries mm. that would push back against that and hold that person more accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do see that uh, in, in certain cases where abuse comes to light in a church that, hey, there were warning signs leading up to this. Um, but very often, uh, there are not uh, yeah. just absolute warning signs or clear warning signs yeah. that everyone sees. In fact, the research says just the opposite. Um, there's no profile of a person you can kind of just, in a, in a few minutes of, of a training, kind of learn and look out for and kind of catch people out that way. Um, that's not typically how it works. Mm. Yeah, and so this policy isn't here to create a culture of suspicion. Rather, right. this policy is a way of acknowledge, uh, acknowledging that abusers are very clever and very deceptive and very manipulative. But with this policy in place and with the awareness that we now have, uh, patterns are going to reveal themselves over time uh, with these things in place. Would yeah. that be a fair way of saying it? It is. And that is one major way we prevent abuse. A second major way is that through this work, by naming this and talking about this and saying, hey, we're a place that is going to report child abuse. If if someone discloses child abuse, this is going to be reported. We are going to insist that those, uh, whether it's any kind of abuse, whether it's against a child or an adult, that people here who hold power and trust in the lives of others we're going to insist that they be accountable. Um, that deters a lot of behaviors um, and pushes back against that entitled thinking. And then, of course, a, a third major way we can do prevention is by stopping abuse that has already begun. And so when someone does disclose, um, abuse often continues. And the sad reality is 
many who abuse power, whether it's uh, pastors or uh, someone who abuses within uh, a domestic violence setting, like against a, a husband or a wife, um, or someone who abuses children, very often there is more than one victim. And so by interrupting someone who is abusing power in some way, uh, we prevent further uh, abuse against an individual survivor, but also against other victims typically. Mike, you talked about this in the training. Um, briefly, if, if someone does approach one of our members and reveals that they have been abused or are currently being abused, how would you guide them to respond? And are there any steps they should take after the conversation? Sure. So um, I think it's good to just say that the, the general posture, whether it's a child or an adult, is, of course, uh, we would say it's a posture that uh, comes from Jesus, um, that we, we sit with the one who is in pain, the one who is hurting, and we simply sit in that pain and, and say very simple things. Uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, that should not have happened to you. Um, you know, I believe you. Or especially if you can tell that they think, well, this is my fault or could have been my fault, or at least it's partly my fault to say, this was not your fault. And to sit with someone as they're very often processing through a lot of confusion, a lot of, uh, and a lot of confusing emotions, maybe anger, maybe grief, maybe despair, um, fear, all sorts of things. For us to simply sit in those emotions, Paul says that we are, as Christians, are to weep with those who weep. And so just applying that verse, to sit with someone and create space for that, hold space for that, and say, I'm here for you, I'm with you, um, because abuse is a direct attack uh, on someone's dignity, on their personhood. And for us to sit there and say, no, you matter. I'm here for you. Uh, that just communicates um, so much very often to someone who's struggling uh, with, with questions like that. Um, I've been treated like I'm disposable. I've been used by someone uh, as if I am uh, something disposable, a disposable object to be used and set aside. For us to sit and affirm and just listen and try not to fix it um, with a sermon or some deep theological uh, point we're trying to make, um, very, very often with good intentions, um, that's just, even though there are good intentions there, that's just not what's needed, but it's just much simpler things. Um, and then can I, can I help you with anything? So staying in that moment is critical. And then I think with a child, of course, there needs to be a report that's made uh, with adult forms of abuse. If it's connected to the community in any way, um, it, and it likely is going to be, uh, for your audience here, if this occurs and that are, they're in this situation, um, just talking to another church leader 
who can help follow through with some responsible steps. Because we would want church leaders, so after a child abuse report has been made, um, you know, you can call the local police department, you can call the local Department of Human Resources and make a report. And, and then letting leaders know that report's been made is a good idea. Um, and if it's an adult, you probably um, wouldn't immediately call the police if they're not ready to do that. Um, but certainly making sure they are okay with you talking to a leader, especially if the potential offender, alleged offender, is within your community also. Um, leaders need that information to assess issues of safety and any accountability that might be appropriate um, at that point. So that's just a few thoughts. Yeah, so helpful. And in our policy, there's going to be more detailed information about reporting, who you would right. report to at Shades, the numbers that you would call. Mike, maybe you could just say a quick word about why a clear line of reporting is so important for churches. Sure. So there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, so when churches have had in the past kind of a kind of a vetting process before they report child abuse, um, that's just led to a lot of abuse continuing. Uh, we've seen that in our work uh, over the years. And it's really not fair to put church leaders in the role of an investigator. Um, first of all, church leaders, and I speak as, again, a former pastor mm -hmm. in internships and my seminary training was not trained to investigate potential crimes. Uh, and that's just not fair that leaders would be asked uh, to be put in that role. And when leaders have taken that role upon themselves, uh, very often that is not served children well over the years. Mm. And then uh, beyond just um, not having the expertise, very often offenders groom not just intended victims, but they groom caregivers of those victims who are adults, and they groom the whole community, including leaders, very often. So if the allegation involves Someone who is known well, and in you know most churches, most churches are not mega churches in the U.S. Um, every church I've ever been a part of in my whole life, every church I've pastored was either a smaller church or a medium church, mm -hmm. where most people know each other. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really fair again to have someone who is known so well, who may have potentially been groomed by an offender take the lead in assessing what's appropriate and assessing allegations. Um, that needs to be done by someone who has training. And of course, in many cases, um, it's the law that someone who's a mandated reporter of child abuse would need to report it because there's a legal obligation to do so. Mm -hmm. As we talked about in the training on Saturday, even if we're not legally required uh, we think we as Christians have a very strong ethical obligation mm -hmm. to report child abuse to the proper authorities uh, because the authorities, law enforcement, uh, CPS, uh, they have responsibility uh, over the safety of kids. And so um, those type of crimes uh, that when those uh, 
are potential crimes uh, that potentially need to be investigated. We need to respect that role, um, and, and that is not our role in the church. Well, Mike, all of this has been so helpful, and we want to be mindful of your time. And so we just have one more question for you, and that is, for those sure. that are uh, interested, are there any resources on the things that we've discussed that you would recommend or somewhere that they can go to find more resources? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> at the risk of sounding um, – <laughs> Self-promoting, um, they can go to our website. Uh, we have some resources for free on our website. We have some videos and some articles, and then we have other resources as well, uh, books and, and many books that we've published. Um, but our website is netgrace.org. Uh, that's a really great place to start. I would say um, Susan Sexton has some lists of recommended resources that we have put mm -hmm. together. Uh, in like a PDF, and she should be able to give a copy of that to anyone who has an interest in seeking out books and other resources on these uh, issues. So uh, those are two main avenues someone could pursue. Um, and one other is um, we have a YouTube channel, and we have some free videos if that's uh, more appealing to some listening, or you listen to the videos, um, and that's that's a format that, that would be helpful. Uh, we have plenty of uh, videos that we've done, forums that we hold that are free, that you can hear some deeper discussion on these issues. Awesome. Well, Mike, words cannot express how thankful we are for you, how thankful we are for the work you're doing, how thankful we are for Grace. I would also like to give a shout out to Susan Sexton, who came to the elders, sat down, and talked with us about this, and then took the steps to contact you guys. And she has been an in-between for us and y'all, and we really wouldn't be where we are today, and y'all wouldn't have come, and we wouldn't have this relationship without her. So I'd be remiss if we didn't say that the Lord has used Susan in a powerful way, but my, clearly the Lord is using you guys in a powerful way. And so we're just so thankful for y'all and not only what you've done so far with the Safeguard Initiative, but also moving forward, having y'all is a resource we are just so thankful for. You've showed us the how to protect the vulnerable in our community. You are very welcome. And, and thank you for all the work you're putting in. We can't do anything without churches like yourself who are uh, engaging and seeking to learn, seeking to be proactive. So really appreciate uh, all you are, all you all are doing. And, um, and yes, thankful for Susan and all she's done and continues to do. So thanks, Brad. Thanks, John Mark.